from New Orleans. This is Mindset. Psychiatrist Dr. Nick Pajic interviews the leading lights of America's most fascinating city. Welcome to Mindset. I'm Dr. Nick Pajic. There are many New Orleanians who are famous. Athletes, musicians, actors, even celebrity chefs. Beverly Bell is not a celebrity. If you walk by Beverly at Rouse's supermarket or dance next to her at a music club, her bright blue eyes and exuberant smile might catch your attention. But there's nothing about Beverly Bell that hints at her achievements in international politics, her success as an award-winning author, or her triumphs as a global social activist. Beverly Bell was a senior aide and advisor to Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the first democratically elected president of Haiti, and to his successor, President René Preval. Beverly is an associate fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, one of Washington, D.C.'s top five think tanks. And she's the founder of Other Worlds, an organization that works around the globe and struggles for social and economic justice. Beverly Bell lives in New Orleans. She was born and raised here. I grew up very privileged and was fortunate enough to have parents who pushed our boundaries a bit. Okay. And so I ended up every summer and many days after school tutoring kids from different parts of town mm -hmm. that had educational challenges. I spent my summers... Uh, tutoring all summer long, working in camps for what we then called disadvantaged children. Uh, when I was 15, my parents gave me the chance to go down to Haiti for a summer to work with the church youth group. And all of those opportunities gave me the fantastic gift of cognitive dissonance. Tell me about the cognitive dissonance. All right. I was <laughs> faced head on at a very early age with extremes in life why race and class and nationality and gender impacted people so differently and why there was so much inequality. I, had, I was faced with these questions. I had no idea what the answers were. Mm -hmm. But what the schism in privilege did for me was force me to begin searching out the answers to those questions. Mm -hmm. So I always felt privileged myself. I always was. Um, I come from a very clear side of the New Orleans tracks. What, what side of the tracks do you come from? I, I come from uptown and everything that that entails. Um, Trinity School, Newman School, Trinity Church, etc. And so I am very, very grateful to my parents, actually, for having pushed me and my siblings as well, so that very early I was able to make a choice without even knowing the language yet that I didn't want to be part of the problem, I wanted to be part of the solution. And so my whole life has been this gift that I've received of getting to work with extraordinary and visionary change makers around the world mm -hmm. who are trying to create something different and who in many cases have created wholly different models, economic, social, cultural, environmental models. And so for me it's been such a, a joy to be able to accompany these people and work with them now for 35 years. You know, a lot of people go abroad and they see some in, more injustices than they maybe see in their own neighborhood here in the United States. 
when you return from that trip when you're 15, you could have just said, you know what, that's really terrible, but I'm going to let some government policy take care of that or a bureaucrat look for solutions. And you could have retired here, not retired, but you know, forged a career doing something here mm -hmm. and done probably just fine and quite good. Why didn't you take that option, do you think? Like, what makes you different than the, the other, another person who might see that poverty and starvation and say, that's, that's terrible. I'm glad I live in the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, what made you different? Well, I don't know. For one thing, I think I came out of the womb as a rebel. You did? Tell me about that. Mm -hmm. Well, you could ask my mother. <laughs> she, could, she could answer better than I. Uh, I just have not accepted the status quo ever in anything. That's one. Secondly, and this is extremely personal, but I cannot stand suffering. It just makes me crazy. It makes me insane. I, and I can't live with the knowledge hmm. that that exists. Your own suffering, other people's suffering? Other people, anybody's, but I, can, I have to live with my own. Of course, we all do. But I can't stand to see uh, anyone being hurt, anyone being treated unjustly. And so that really propelled me forward. And then, you know, Nick, I think a lot of people don't want to live with the world as it is. I don't think that I'm special. I think that I just mm -hmm. have found ways to engage myself. I talk to people all of the time. I talk to people on the streets and in the grocery stores. I talk to everybody wherever I go. And so often what I find from people is a real frustration with the way that things are and a wish that they could do something to make it better. Mm -hmm. And I think that we don't learn in our schools how to be global citizens. We might do a service learning project, but we're not told, you know, you actually are sisters and brothers with everyone else in the world. And in fact, except for an accident of history, you are their compatriots. You are their fellow citizens. Mm -hmm. Have you had your own personal sufferings? Sure. I think like most people, when you get behind the doors of family or the doors of the schoolroom, there's a lot of antagonism and hostility. It gets played out in many ways. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I experience more than my share of that, but every kid experiences that. Are you, do you have brothers and sisters? Mm -hmm. There are five of us. Five of us? Where are you in the lineup? I'm four. Four? Okay, well that can be a chaotic existence was... at times. What was it like What was it like growing up with all those kids? And, and it, how... was, it was chaotic. <laughs> You're laughing because you're like, you, you say yes, you agree with that. Yes. Okay. It was chaotic. But, but it wasn't, there was no extreme suffering. I was not abused. I, you know, none of that. I was not neglected. Um, my parents are very, very loving people. And so I don't know. Maybe it was just cosmic. Maybe it's karma. Maybe some people are just born with a different set of vision than others. I'm not sure why some people choose to shoulder one burden and others don't. I think part of it is the knowledge, as I was saying, mm -hmm. that for me, I do know that I can have an impact. And so that feels very empowering and it allows me to take more risks than some people would. Like um, what kind of like risk, like risking your own life type of thing? I mean, sure. I don't. Yeah, it could be that. Um, I'm happy to say I have never been hurt, and I think it's because I look the way that I do um, as a white, 
a pale U.S. person. I've worked all over the world mm. in conditions of great danger. I've had guns pulled on me. I don't know how many times mm. I've been chased. I've been threatened. I've been imprisoned. But I've actually never been hurt, which is amazing. And I attribute it to the, again, privilege of the word that's out all over the world is that you don't really mess with the U.S. citizens. And I'm pretty clearly from a North country. In the world, I mean, the word out in the world is you don't mess with the U.S. citizen. You mean right. like harm them, kill them. Yes. Like you may use them for ransom, but don't ever, right. you know. U.S. citizens are killed and arrested and tortured, but very, very, very rarely relative okay. to um, people who who don't have to fear the condemnation of the U.S. government if you go after one of their citizens. Wow. So I guess along the way, I've built up my confidence. I've built up my strength. I've been doing this a very long time. And I, even more than my own personal situation, though, which isn't the most important thing to me at all here. What is do you mean your, most per your, your, your personal situation? My safety. Yeah. Even, oh, more, yeah. even more than the safety element has been having had so many experiences where I have seen the result of organized action and I have seen how it has changed communities, changed nations, changed economic systems, changed political systems. Yeah. And each time I've seen that, it further propels me forward. I see. So it makes you more confident in your own efforts knowing that, that you can see change and you can help bring the change right. and facilitate it. Right. And makes me more committed to working with people's movements, grassroots movements, because that's the only way I believe that change gets made. I don't see it made lasting change. I don't see it being made by one individual. But I... But you mean I, you don't see it as being a top-down thing? It's more like the people need to feel like this work, This is a good policy for us, and then things fall into place, and they take their natural course right. organically. When you see dictators fall, when you see democracies yeah. burgeon, when you see systems of legalized discrimination and of slavery fall in every single case. Mm -hmm. There may have been a few big guys at the top who legislated it, but it's always been propelled by people's people. movements from underneath. Do you ever get um, tired of one cause? And, um, meaning like where you're, you're working in a place and you feel like it's not stimulating you as much because it's hard work and that may be more thrilling to go somewhere else? I, I work all over the world, actually. Right. I've worked in about 35 different countries. Um, West Africa, Southern Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean, the U.S., I should say. I've worked a lot with farm worker movements here and with refugees here. Yeah. Um, I work on all kinds of issues from uh, repression to the movement against violence against women, indigenous peoples organizing for their land, shantytown dwellers organizing for the right to home, um, change in World Bank and IMF and World Trade Organization policies. So there's You're no, busy. there's I'm busy, there's no boredom. I never get tired. I can get frustrated because it is very hard and there are a lot of losses and those are very painful. What kind of losses? Oh, I've lost a lot of people. I've had, my main mentor was uh, gunned down in a hail of machine gun bullets paid for by the U.S. government. I've mm -hmm. had um, other friends. Um, 
uh, just this week, I had a friend who was arrested in Honduras, and we just got her out of prison, and she was not tortured, thankfully, Mm -hmm. because there's a big repression there. I've had friends who've had children die of starvation or die of needless uh, medical issues. Those are hard and painful. Dealing with rape and torture that other people suffer is psychologically hard. So those of us who do this work have to find ways to strengthen ourselves, and one of the ways that we do it is by the joy of working with these incredible communities, mm-hmm. as I said, of such visionary and committed and impassioned and generous people. How do you how do you fund yourself going from one country to the next? Seems like a lot of work, a lot of travel, a lot of security, maybe mm-hmm. even. I've uh, I run a nonprofit okay. called Other Worlds, and my colleagues and I raise the funds for all of this work, and I started, I think, 12 international organizations now. So wow. since 1981, I've been running nonprofits. And so everything that I do and my colleagues do are all part of this budget, and I get a salary. You didn't know how to run a nonprofit when you first started, I can imagine. No, I was you 21. Seen, you were 21. Uh-huh. So imagine you're 21, and you're listening to this interview right now. Right. What would you tell that person if, if they wanted to be successful and make it doing whatever? What would you tell them? I would ask first what their passion is. And how do you think, how should one look for their passion? Everyone must know some passion. I mean, it could be barbecuing on a Sunday, but I think everyone has to know inside something that they care about, whether it is the neglect of dogs and cats in the shelter or um, childhood hunger or what's happening to our wetlands Mm -hmm. in Louisiana. There's got to be something that engages your heart. And um, if we can connect with what that is and head down that path, whatever it is, so long as hopefully it's helping Mm -hmm. and not just contributing to one's own wealth and fame, but actually leading towards a better world. I mean, Mm -hmm. it sounds trite to say that, but I think that two things come from that. One is that that's the way we're going to achieve our goals. But secondly, The process itself is so rich and adds so much meaning to life. Are there other people like you, honestly, out there? You seem kind of like a a saint to me. No, God, please. Oh, my gosh, that's horrible. No. No, indeed. The horrible saint. No, 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 no. (laughs) No. Of course, there are so many. And they're the people that I keep talking about. They're all over the world. They're in this city. They're around the U.S. working in, in... different sectors and in different struggles and in different ways. Mm -hmm. There are people who work in the back office. There are people who work on the front lines of the demonstration. There are people who do the fundraising. There are people who put the bandages on. Mm -hmm. We need one huge world that has everybody contributing however they can. I don't think that there's a hierarchy of suffering, and I don't think that there's a hierarchy of response. Mm -hmm. It really comes down to what's in your heart, where your passion is, where you feel that you are best to lend your energy. Um, I'm sure that there are more people's lives who've been changed by the Boys and Girls Club, by Mm -hmm. mentoring, by anything that we can do to say, I'm going to leave this world a richer and more beautiful place than I came into it. For gender rights or women's rights, you, you are an advocate. I was wondering, does that come from your experience in Haiti and seeing women brutalized? Or was that just being a woman yourself in New Orleans society and, and, and linked to, to the Haiti problem? like I think I was born a little baby feminist. 
Um, <laughs> and I have always been sensitive to ways that gender can play out in terms of disparity. My focus is always on those who are most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So in a society who I care about are indigenous peoples, peasant peoples, expropriated people, poor people, women, especially low-income women, mm-hmm. and their children. Children are actually the most vulnerable member of any society. Yeah. Um, and so when I see in a country, be it Mali or Peru or wherever I'm working, low-income women they bear a double burden, um, first of being poor and secondly of being a woman. And their, um, the discrimination against them, both social and economic, plays out in very, very harsh ways in their life. And so that's why I care. When you were a little girl, did you experience racism here and, um, and or your own, own vulnerabilities? Yes, I experienced it but in a very twisted manner because I went to a lily white school, I went to a lily white church, no one talked about race. The African Americans that I came into contact with were the flambeau carriers in the Mardi Gras parades Mm. and were the domestic workers in people's homes. Uh, And I, I think I was in seventh grade before my school even got integrated. So I saw it and I knew that there was something wrong and I didn't have anyone with whom to discuss what the issues were. I constantly find myself in a village or in a church or a room where there'll be 500 people and I'll be the only white person there Mm -hmm. or the only one who's not of that nationality. And so my discomfort comes of with owning my own difference and being very careful that I'm not speaking for others, I'm not claiming to represent others. Just as an example, mm-hmm. tonight I'm sending off to the publisher a book on Haiti since the earthquake that I've been working on for the last eight months. That makes me feel very vulnerable. I am a middle-class woman from the U.S. I'm not Haitian, and even though this book has been co-written with Haitians and they have been encouraging me all the way along and they've read sections and commented, still the notion of being outside of my own community mm-hmm. can be delicate. And so I am constantly trying to check my power and my ego mm-hmm. at the door and be very, very careful about on whose land and in whose movement I may be treading. And that's why I think I try to be very conscious of the fact that it's about transforming our own country and community. And I just believe that we have to do it in an interrelated, intertwined way. Have you had any failures where you, uh, or any gut checks along the way where you said, whoa, like I need to um, re-focus my attention or I need to get back to the fundamentals? Once, and it's when I was running an organization in Washington, well, we had offices in Albuquerque, Washington, and Mumbai, Mm -hmm. called the Center for Economic Justice, and it got bigger and bigger. I had, I forget now, nine staff or something, and uh, we were running a boycott against the World Bank in conjunction with grassroots movements all over the world, and 
it just got so big and the power differential between us in Washington, D.C. and the movements of um, environmental justice activists and landless people, et cetera, became strong. And actually, when I realized that, I just quit. I just, I left the directorship. I had founded it. I had run it for eight, seven years, and I just said, I'm out of here. What prompted you to quit rather than figure it out? Or like, I don't know if you could figure it out or... I think it was a question of structure, and sometimes structures um, are very hard to transform. And that's, again, why the movements that I work with are about creating new and alternative structures, because you can't often reform something that has gone down a certain path. Again, I think that's what the Occupy movement is about. I think that's what the Arab Spring is about, Mm -hmm. is saying we need to take it back to the people and construct new notions of power and of democracy. For, do you think our dif- democracy is inher- inherently flawed from the separations of powers, how it's been structured? Do you think it consolidates too much power to any one branch and not with the people as much? I think the separation of powers is fantastic. I think that, that we have a beautiful model. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's been held hostage by those with money who can buy whatever they want. Citizens United, that Supreme Court case, was sort of the ultimate stamp, or perhaps it was um, Obama agreeing that taxpayers should bail out bankers who were still taking home these seven-figure bonuses, um, I think that's where the failing is. Because once you have that, then where's the accountability? And where does our real power lie? Do you find it hard to leave the United States ever Um, because because of work that needs to be done here? No. I think that the work needs to be done everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. I'm engaged in um, some fantastic grassroots movements that are happening in the U.S. that are so exciting. And one of the things that our organization does is try and open up more portals Mm -hmm. so that some of the false binaries of first world, third world, um, rich country, poor country, being a citizen of the U.S. versus being a citizen of the world Mm -hmm. break down. And increasingly, people can realize that it really doesn't matter so much where our struggles are located, mm-hmm. that they need to be taking place on all different terrains. Yeah. So for me, it doesn't really matter where I am. You've been everywhere, it seems like. Um, more than <laughs> Not everywhere. Your most uh, mm-hmm. average New Orleanian. How can you come back here? Like, why don't you move somewhere else that maybe, I don't know, what is it about New Orleans that kind of keeps you, I mean, because you come back... I come back. It's such a wonderful city. There's nowhere else, as we all know, that's anything like this city. And what I actually see in New Orleans is a lot of the same very highs and very lows that I see in other places around the world. I see that same structural violence I was talking about Mm -hmm. with the gross inequality and an excluded um, population. And I also see the thing that I love most about this city, the tremendous burgeoning of community. Mm. And when I look at our traditions of stoop sitting and speaking to people and even our wild communal street celebrations, Mm -hmm. they're all about sustaining community. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Nothing will make my day more than someone calling out, hey, baby, on the street. <laughs> 
Um, so that's why that's why I'm here. Uh, it's it, as we all know, the city can't be beat. It cannot be replaced. The spirit here is it's beautiful. And you find that the community sense here, where people you know, yell out to each other, "Hey, baby!" in the street, or waving to each other if you're sitting on a porch or something, comes from uh, Haiti, maybe, or um, I guess any Af- African countries. I think that that's right. I think that that's right, and I'm 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 not an anthropologist, but the more I've studied the music and the parading, and the costuming and the architecture and the food, even the names mm-hmm. and the population, the migration patterns back and forth, it's extraordinary. In 1809, more than one in two people in New Orleans was directly from Haiti. Hmm. For example, and here you can find people in rural Louisiana who yeah. still speak some words that are only used in Haiti. You can find descendants of slaveholders and plantation owners in New Orleans who still feel resentment that their land was stolen from them. I've had people say that to me. I put stolen in quotes mm-hmm. after the slave revolution there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's a beautiful thing to see that, in fact, especially in this town, there the roots straight back to Africa are so strong and vibrant. And I think that that's what we owe mm-hmm. many of the best parts of this city to. What's next for you in terms, I mean, you're publishing this, you're attempting to publish another book that you spent eight months working on. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some things that you think you'll do next or that you'd like to see and what continues to drive you to do those things? Mm-hmm. Um, well, we have a lot of really exciting plans on the block. I just published another book two months ago, a small one called Birthing Justice. That's oral histories of women from 12 movements around the world. And so we're very involved yeah. right now in getting those out, getting mm-hmm. the stories out as radio, as blogs, as newspaper articles, bringing some of those women to the U.S., some are from the U.S., but bringing others here to speak. Once this book on Haiti called Fault Lines is out in eight or ten months, there will be a speaking tour. I'll mm-hmm. bring up Haitians um, because I don't. I believe in nothing about us without us, so there will be a wild speaking tour with lots of Haitians um, traveling around with me. What continues to drive you then? I mean, you've mentioned this before a little bit, but you know, how, how far will you go and what's driving you? How far will I go? Well, to the grave. And what's (laughs) driving me is my belief that we are not condemned to live in this world as it is and that it can be something different for everybody, not just the few. One indicator of how wrong our systems are and how dramatically we need very, very, very fundamental policy change relates to levels of global hunger. Mm -hmm. We produce enough food in a year to feed 12 billion people, and yet there are only 7 billion people in the world. The UN Special Rapporteur on Food, Jean Ziegler, said that every person who dies from hunger in the world is assassinated. Because none of the causes are natural. There is no need for it. One of the lessons that I take from this 
is that the way the world is, with so much injustice and violence and inequity, is not inevitable. This was created through a series of policy choices enacted by human beings. And to me, that is a tremendously hopeful piece of information because right. it also means that we can enact something different. We can create something different. I've been talking to Beverly Bell, social activist, political activist, champion of the underprivileged and the unrepresented. Beverly is the author of many blogs, articles, and books. Her most recent books are Birthing Justice, Women Creating Economic and Social Alternatives, and Fault Lines, Views Across Haiti's New Divide, about the current state of Haiti after the earthquake. She is the founder and program coordinator of Other Worlds. Beverly Bell lives in New Orleans. I'm Dr. Nick Pajic. Thank you for joining me on this edition of Mindset. Mindset is produced by Grant Morris. Technical direction by Eric Murrell. Mindset Music is composed, arranged, and performed by Alexis Marceau and Sam Craft. Mindset is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com. Summer's almost over, but at Old Navy, the styles are as hot as ever. Get to Old Navy now for 30% off all jeans, 40% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, get 30, 40, and 50% off all your favorite styles for the whole family, plus up to 75% off clearance. Hurry in fast. These deals won't last. The sale ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid in-store 822 to 828 and online 822 to 824. Excludes in-store clearance, bubbles, active, licensed, and men's package tees.